Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. I like to say that you learn the most in markets by studying the periods when things go horribly wrong. And in this spirit, Alpha Exchange guests are often asked to reflect back on risk events of great consequence. 2023 marks the 25th anniversary of the LTCM fiasco, an event too long ago to matter for anyone under the age of 40, even as there are valuable lessons to be had from this giant portfolio unwind. As we look back on this vol event from 1998, it was a pleasure to welcome Nicholas Dunbar, author of Inventing Money, the Story of Long-Term Capital, to the podcast. With a background in math and physics, and with a long stint at Risk Magazine, Nick was well-equipped to explain how the effort to conquer markets through the science of derivatives ultimately failed. Along the way, he provides a brief history of how option theory has developed, brings to life key players in the story, and dives into the technical details of LTCM's trades. We learn about the dangers of models, leverage, hubris, and crowding all at once. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Nick Dunbar. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Nick Dunbar. He is a well-known author and also the founder and editor of Risky Finance. Nick, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Dean. It's a pleasure and it's a great privilege to be invited to speak on Alpha Exchange. Well, this is going to be a lot of fun. We are 25 years post the epic unwind of the long-term capital management portfolio. And it's something that certainly stayed with me. I really enjoy looking back on episodes of significant consequence in financial markets. And this was a this was a doozy. And you took it upon yourself to write a book, a really well-crafted book called Inventing Money, the Story of Long-Term Capital Management. And that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. This incredible hedge fund that launched with great fanfare, I want to say in 1994, and had massive success and just as spectacular and unwind. And you wrote a really informative book on it. So I'm really eager to dive into it and to learn about the process you took to prepare the work, what you learned along the way. So we'll have a lot of fun in this conversation. As we get our discussion started, I would love to learn more about you. It's difficult to write a book on such a complex topic. So you've got a background in some of this stuff. So tell us just about your own career, maybe starting with some of your academic training and then how you got into the derivative side of financial journalism. Sure. Thank you for that introduction. I guess I started out as a physics student in college. I started out in England. I went to Cambridge in England and then I ended up at Harvard Graduate School. And I was actually in the PhD program doing physics, but I never finished it. But I was there for um, a few years. And that's where I met all of these fellow students who became my friends. They all went to Wall Street. And this was in the 90s. They went to Wall Street. And then I was starting out as a writer and a journalist. They said to me, look, we're doing all of this stuff. No one knows how to write about it. Why don't you focus on this? Because you understand it and no one else does. And they said, it's basically physics. So I got into it and I investigated it. And lo and behold, a lot of the math behind option pricing was 
related to what I had studied in the past. So I became a journalist writing about it. And when the LTCM crisis happened, I sort of had this immediate insight that there's something that should be a book and it should be something I could explain. So that's kind of how it came about. And, you know, since then, I've been a journalist in working for places like Risk Magazine, which was, uh, I was there for a long time, running their quant pages. I've worked at Reuters, I've worked at Bloomberg, The Economist Group, and then I founded Risky Finance. So in a nutshell, that's my story. Well, I want to circle back at the back end of our conversation to some of your current efforts at Risky Finance. I would love to learn a little bit more about Risk Magazine. It's a really interesting and unique publication. And I'll just admit something. When I first came out of business school from the University of Chicago, I landed at Lehman Brothers. And I wound up in their corporate library very often. And I got hold of these Risk Magazine publications. And I always wound up in the, uh, there was always a, a treatise on some form of exotic option. And I would just sit there and I would Xerox these things and I would compile them. It was kind of like a a learning segment where you went through, whether it was a look back option or a double no touch option, there was always some interesting stuff in there, but it's a really unique and advanced and dare I say expensive publication. But just tell us about your time there and just a little bit more about Risk Magazine. It was a really fun place to work back in those days. Back then, nobody wrote about derivatives in any mainstream newspaper or publication. You didn't see it in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. No one even knew what a derivative was. It was seen as something in the most obscure subjects. So Risk Magazine was founded by um, this guy called Peter Field. He was in around 1987 or 1988. So it had been going for 10 years when I joined. But it really cornered the market, writing about over-the-counter derivatives in this, at a time when it was massively growing. And the industry needed a place to learn about what was going on, including the quant papers where they would actually publish the formulas for pricing these derivatives. So I was hired to run that and I set up a peer review system. I ended up hiring people to help me do that. And I was there for a good 10 years or 11 years, just writing articles for them, running the quant pages, going to their conferences. They had a conference actually in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I mean, they lost 16 people in the Twin Towers. So it was, that was a very traumatic time for them, for all of us. But it was a great place to work. I mean, I think now it's not quite as exclusive as it used to be because a lot, a lot of people know about derivatives now. But back then, it was great. It was really enjoyable. Well, you mentioned your background in physics and, of course, the applicability of physics to the math of specifically option pricing is something that's incredibly important. And as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of long-term, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of really the seminal paper, The Pricing of Options and Corporate Liabilities by Fisher Black and Myron Scholes. So that was 1973. And what you do in Inventing Money is you really give us a nice, rich history of options. You go back to really the code of Hammurabi, which was really interesting. And this idea that there are sometimes implicit options in contracts and so forth. So in terms of long-term capital, of course, they had this all-star team. The credibility of 
the founder, John Merriweather, and his incredible team from the Solomon Arb Desk, Eric Rosenfeld, Larry Hillebrand, and so on and so on. But they also had Myron Scholes and Robert Merton. And a lot of people do say it's the Black Scholes Merton model in a lot of ways. But I'm hoping you can take us back, all the way back to kind of the late 60s, early 70s, with regard to these exciting developments in terms of option pricing. And I know it's going to ask you to go back a little bit, but I'll ask you anyway. In terms of a a little bit of history on some of the characters, on Fisher Black, on Myron Scholes, on Robert Merton. And again, you describe some of their interactions through MIT and some of their professors. What can you tell us about these individuals as they developed this path-breaking and really important financial technology in terms of the paper? I can go back even further, Dean. I mean, you can go back to the 1900s when there was a Frenchman called Louis Bachelier who actually did an option pricing exercise on the Paris stock market. And he almost invented the Black-Scholes formula then, not quite. And then and the math of that was related to something that Albert Einstein was working on in his PhD thesis in, in Zurich. So there you have this physics connection, which excited me at the time, which is this thing called Brownian motion. So the physics of Brownian motion, which is the movement of pollen particles when buffeted by atoms, is like the stochastic behavior of a financial asset that's being traded in the market. So that's the sort of connection that goes back a long way. In the 50s and 60s, you had these American finance academics like Merton Miller of Harry Markowitz, who started exploring this stuff as a financial problem and trying to understand it with putting it onto some kind of theoretical basis. That's when Scholes, Merton, and Fisher Black came on the scene, and they were all in academia, but they were looking at the market. They were going to the exchanges, and they were looking at the prices of these things. For them, it was like an intellectual exercise. They were trying to get their PhDs um, studying these things and starting to work out how to trade them, and maybe they could make a bit of money selling the formula. But they, by the time this was published in 1973, when they actually first wrote down the formula, and as you said, Merton was pretty much equivalent to them, really. So it was really the Black-Scholes-Merton formula. The Chicago Board of Trades started trading options, and they created an exchange called the CBOE, and these things started to become a financial asset, really, that was traded in equity options. And then this market began to grow. It was purely on an exchange in those days. But that's kind of set the scene for what was to come. And so what was so interesting about the Black-Scholes work was effectively backing into the price of the option by identifying this replicating portfolio that reproduced its price in all states of the world and then saying, if we think the law of one price governs markets in terms of market efficiency, this has got to be the price of the option. That was very different than some of the equilibrium pricing models that had been popular through things like CAPN. Tell us just about that, just in terms of the development and then how quickly that pricing technology made its way into the market. You mentioned exchanges like the CBOT. So back in the 60s, a lot of people were working on the assumption that if you priced an option on a stock, it was a bit like working out what the stock was going to do in the future. So 
in the same way that when you do something called the capital asset pricing model, you need the equity risk premium and the beta and all of these parameters that had been invented in the 60s. You'd kind of need all that stuff. They assume that if you just have an option which is like minimizes the downside and that has this call option structure or put option structure, you'd need the cap in, you'd need all the machinery of that with the premium that needs to be included in the option pricing formula. But the big surprise that came out in the 1973 papers was that because of this replicating portfolio and, and there's no arbitrage requirement, then all of the things like the expected return, the equity risk premium, all of that disappeared and all that you needed is the fact, you know, apart from the strike price and the, the risk-free interest rate is the expected volatility of the asset you're pricing. And that was a surprise at the time. And then this formula was a result of that, which then it was actually put onto a handheld calculator when they were first trading those in Chicago. Well, let's fast forward to the days at Solomon Brothers and the ascendancy of not just John Merriweather, but this certain style of investing, which is really not about the gunslinger who takes a view on whether rates are going up or down or whether the stock market's going up or down, or is even a liquidity provider intermediating between customer flow. There was a lot of that and continued to be a lot of that. But this new philosophy really embraced by Merriweather and all the extremely intelligent folks that were underneath him was a new way of thinking about markets, more of a relative value framework. So take us back to the years before the launch of long-term capital and tell us about John Merriweather inside of Solomon Brothers and about this fabled bond arb desk. So yeah, so this is the era of um, you know, Liar's Poker. The, I'm sure most of your listeners will have seen that book. But it was the time of before Glass-Steagall, it was before banks became, you know, everything was a bank as it is now. And it was a day of the, the securities firm. They were regulated by the um, SEC, not the Federal Reserve. And there was a very different regulatory environment than the Fed. And as a result, the ability to be market makers in treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities was connected to the ability to take risk and the capacity of these securities firms to have prop trading positions. These were internal hedge funds at Salomon, also at Goldman and Lehman as well. And, you know, these old securities firms had this prop trading culture where they would basically, there would be an internal hedge fund that would be the liquidity provider for the customers. And this would, may well end up being in the something that was traded in Chicago, or it then ultimately became a sort of over the counter trading, over the counter derivative. And so the team internally at Salomon Brothers has an incredible amount of success. There's some power struggles, as there always are, at large investment banks. And Merriweather's stock increases a ton, but ultimately the Paul Moser government bond scandal is an issue for Merriweather and folks like John Goodfriend as well. Tell us a little bit about that incident in terms of the rigging scandal at the auction and then the series of events that led to Merriweather deciding to go out on his own. So the role of the securities firms, well, you know, they had this privileged primary dealer function at the time. They had a connection with the Federal Reserve System that was different to JP Morgan and Citibank, which were just lenders 
and they had access to the discount window. You just had the securities firms that were primary dealers. And that gave them a huge advantage, but the conflicts were pretty intense because there would be these prop trading operations like, like Merriweather's, and there was this incentive to use the primary dealer bid when they were bidding for new treasuries to be issued. There was an incentive to front run what was happening in the market. That was ultimately illegal. It was a violation of securities law. And that was something that Merriweather's team was involved in. And that was basically the end of Merriweather and his career at Slat Salomon. And it was the end of John Goodfriend. It was a big scandal. And this is, again, back is all ancient history where now these are all regulated by the Federal Reserve. But back then, it was a scandal specifically for Salomon. I think also for the whole business model of the securities firm. And this really sets Merriweather on this idea that in order to be unconstrained, he may have to set up his own shop. And back then, hedge funds really weren't a thing like they are now. But long-term capital became obviously a just a giant hedge fund. So set the stage for us with regard to the initial team the key players on that initial team. And then I think it would also be very helpful to learn, because you focus on this, the fundraising process was pretty unique as well. It's not easy to raise a billion dollars in 1993. And so they had some help and some vastly strategic relationships. So set the stage for us there, Nick, in terms of the launch of LTCM. Sure. So you had you know these Salomon traders like Merriweather and Eric Rosenfeld and Hagani and the others. But what they really needed to do is to build up a sort of a blue chip image. And then they wanted to surround themselves with people who had a connection to that world. And they hired a former member of the Federal Reserve. They brought in Scholes and Merton, who provided this veneer of respectability, you could say, this scientific academic quality. They could almost present themselves as a a sort of research operation. Like if you think of something like Renaissance Capital today, it's very academic. They're all quants. I think that mystique was there at LTCM in the early days. Yeah, and there's something in one of their documents. I just recall this quite well. The quote that I remember is, we are the people that designed the models and we are setting about to use them on a grand scale. And so there was, a, and I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on this. Was there just an incredible amount of buy-in that they had internally with regard to what they were doing? In other words, Scholes and Merton are there for some version of window dressing. It's incredibly helpful to have <laughs> pioneers in option pricing as partners at the company. But there also seems to be, within long-term, uh, just an incredible amount of conviction. I believe they called themselves, as you kind of alluded to there, a financial technology company. Yeah, that's right. And they could do that because they outsourced some of the big traditional Wall Street functions. So they used Bear Stearns as their prime broker. They used Merrill Lynch, where they piggybacked on Merrill Lynch's sales force. So they could focus on the trading and the research and the quant strategies. Because of that, they didn't need all of the expensive infrastructure of a typical investment bank. Even though they resembled an investment bank, they didn't have a lot of that baggage, that very expensive baggage that's so where you have to pay like a big sales team and a big back office team. They kind of were very quite light 
in the footprint in that way. Well, they got started in 1994, started putting trades on. And 1994, 1995, 1996, those, for the most part, were pretty benign years. Of course, you had the Fed tightening aggressively in 1994. So there was definitely some fallout from that. But I specifically remember a VIX of 11-ish kind of for at least some part of 95 and 1996. Those were really quiet times. And that's when they effectively generated these just really outsized returns. Even after taking a, a hefty chunk from a performance fee, they were still delivering incredible results. Talk to us about your research process in terms of the successful parts of the firm, the early days, 94, 95, 96. They kind of got through 1997 as well. Walk through what you learned in terms of your process for writing the book and some of their trades that really work like magic those first couple of years. Well, first of all, just a bit of context that I think is quite important. If you think about what the markets were like at the time, inflation was around maybe 5%. And the Fed's fund rate was similar to that. So it wasn't like the inflationary environment today. It was like inflation was subsiding, I guess. It was, a, it was part of a very long deflationary cycle that goes all the way back to the Volcker era at the Fed ends really with quantitative easing. It's a, it's a very long ride of down uh, towards the zero yields. There were a few bumps along the way. I mean, in 1994, there was a period of tightening at the Fed and there were some hedge funds that uh, lost a lot of money in that period. I think that was the time of Orange County, for example. And then you had a bit of a derivative scandal and one of the early ones with Bankers Trusts and Procter and Gamble. So there was a bit of that going on, but LTCM were able actually to exploit that. They were able to benefit from the sort of unwind of, of some of those early hedge fund competitors where they um, were able to take the other side of those positions. So that gave them a good head start. And I think also the fact is that they also had a base in Europe. So their London office became pretty important because there was a lot going on at the time as the project of the European Monetary Union was being conceived. It was a thing called the Maastricht Treaty that was signed in 1992. Then there was something called the European Exchange Rate Mechanism. There was an attempt to align these economies like Germany, Italy, France, etc., and then end up with the creation of the euro. And what that meant was that if you understood that what was going on and that there was this will toward doing that, you could then treat that as a relative value opportunity. And you could look at Italian government bonds with 10% yield. And you could think, well, these are going to converge towards German bonds. And they, indeed, they did at the end. And LPCM was able to, particularly with its sort of academic connections, its sort of central bank connections, it was able to get access to central banks in Europe and get a lot of information that you would not normally expect a hedge fund to get hold of. So they did have some tremendous advantages in that way. You spend a lot of time on that in the book, and I found it really interesting to reread, and I'm just recalling from the first time I read the book, it was really a fascinating trade, this convergence trade that really capitalized on the European Monetary Union, as you said, the coming together of yields from the higher interest rate countries to the lower ones. And Victor Hagani was really the architect of that trade. Victor has been on the podcast earlier, 
We talked about some of the portfolio and wine that he and the team experienced, but you spent a lot of time on that. And you mentioned that the Bank of Italy was a, I believe, an investor, maybe through one of their agencies, an investor in long-term capital. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about the strategic relationships that LTCM was able to build and how you think back on what that meant for them just with regard to success, access at auctions and so forth, maybe specific to this particular trade. Tell us about the LTCM strategic side that might have been helpful in this particular trade. Sure. Well, it started with its foundation when they started with money from Payne Weber and Bank Julius Bayer and Dresdner Bank. And then you had this connection with UBS, which is, um, I don't know if you were going to come to that. That's pretty ironic, given what's happened um, last weekend. I guess you're going to come to this, but that was also related to the, um, the equity derivatives that they made. But the bond trade, the government bond trade was, I wrote about this also in my subsequent book, Devil's Derivatives, but there was this whole angle with the accounting in the Eurozone and just exactly what, how they measured this political goal of convergence. So this was related to things like, in Italy, for example, the country's debt and deficit ratios. By doing trades with either a bank or a hedge fund, they were able to effectively disguise or flatter their balance sheet. And this kind of thing happened with Greece subsequently when they used swaps with Goldman Sachs. I think LTCM was like in an early case of that, where they were part of this process where they got some inside information and they were a helpful counterparty to facilitate a political goal, which was um, convergence with Germany. Right. And this turns out to be a pretty profitable trade uh, among many during that period where the portfolio was effectively being constructed. And, And of course, as it's being constructed, they're just a giant, giant counterparty of the street in every way, shape or form. In Prime Brokerage, you mentioned Bear Stearns. I think you quoted the number $25 million in fees for Bear Stearns. I was at Lehman Brothers, and I think we were probably average in equity derivatives. Uh, That's where I was covering them, and it was certainly the biggest account of the desk. Of course, on the interest rate derivative side, they were even bigger, and that was just spread all over the street. And when you're a big payer, you get great service as well. And one of the things that long-term was really, really focused on is collateral management. They were sellers of lots of different types of options. They never had to post upfront collateral. They posted mark-to-market, but not upfront collateral. Tell us about what you learned there in terms of it, the firm's obsession with managing collateral with this goal of being anti-fragile in a lot of ways. Of course, it didn't work out, but they were certainly very focused on the collateral side of things. Yes, that's right. It was a way of getting leverage, effectively. If you're going to fund something with a capital base, which was, you know, let's say it was $4 billion or something like that, you could leverage it by collateralizing these positions and using a model, like a value-at-risk model, to basically instruct your collateralization to basically either receive or post-collateral. And yeah, that ultimately became the way all of Wall Street operated. Yeah, they were fairly early in that process. But they wanted to do these trades in such size that they actually did a sort of a vast trade with UBS. And they actually gave UBS a stake 
as part of that pressure. Right. This was a really interesting part of the relationship between LTCM and its lenders, its credit counterparties, that uh, the allure of this fund and being able to get a piece of it was so significant for firms like UBS. They didn't just want to be a lender. They wanted to be an investor as well. I'd love for you to walk through the kind of Myron Scholl's idea, very obsessed with taxes and using the derivatives code to figure out tax problems and how that made its way into this ultimate transaction with UBS. Basically, this is the question of how to defer income tax. So how do you manage that? Basically, Scholl's, his view was that if you did a trade with a counterparty like UBS, then that would turn income into something else that wasn't taxed in the same way. And you could tax the IRS that there was some risk involved in this and you could avoid having to pay income tax. Basically, LTCM bought this option from UBS on its own performance. And then UBS turned out and took some of that option premium and funneled it back into the fund. Is that is that correct? Yes, that, that's how it works. So UBS took this stake of LTCM for seven years. LTCM paid a cash premium for the option. And then that sort of helped fund the trade for UBS. Well, as you talk about UBS making an investment and just licking their chops in terms of getting access to the upside in the fund, there really was this mystique. I certainly remember, I believe it was in 1994, the cover of Business Week. It just said the trader and it had a big picture of John Merriweather. So there was just so much credibility in the market. And then when you put up returns like that, the story really becomes self-fulfilling in a lot of ways. It explains itself. The resumes are there. The returns are there. The trades seem incredibly complex. And there was a lot of copycat capital that was alongside LTCM. Take us through what you learned there, just in terms of the firms that were maybe imitating what LTCM was doing. And then did that have an effect in moving the market LTCM's way initially, and then maybe doing the exact opposite on the unwind? Yeah, so that's a really fascinating aspect of this, is that once you have this portfolio of relative value trades, and there are a lot of them, there's the equity volatility trade, which is kind of like a delta hedging strategy, term structure of all, like you're you're basically making the difference between implied and realized vol, or you're trading the term structure of volatility between short-dated options and long-dated options, or you're doing things like pairs trading in US stocks or like dual listed companies. You're doing things with swap spreads. They did that with Sterling. They had these big Eurozone trades as well, as we discussed. And once trading desks who are doing business with LCM and everyone wanted to cover them, and you were one of them in your previous incarnation, this starts to leap. We're supposed to be sort of Chinese walls, but ultimately the prop desks at these banks want to get into the same trade because they it seems to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then other hedge funds or, or traders out there are doing the same thing. And of course, as they are bidding in the same direction as LTCM, they are bringing about that self-fulfilling prophecy. They're bringing about that convergence by just joining in on those trades. Yes. And it really is an interesting open question as to how much of that capital that effectively went the same way 
push the marks LDCM's way at the onset, I certainly think it's easy to argue that the opposite clearly happened as folks started to unwind. And we'll talk about specifically the unwind of the Solly ARB desk, which seemed to be a pretty pivotal point. That certainly started to turn the tide against LDCM. There's something that's quite insidious about all this copycat trading because it actually reduces the return. So as the return goes down, because there's only a limited amount of money you can make in this trade, then the leverage required to make the same return goes up. So you not only get more people joining in that trade, but you also get those same people increasing the leverage because they're trying to chase the same returns that they were there to start with. So not only the number of counterparties, but not only the number of traders, but also the leverage in the system builds up because everyone is, they want to keep their jobs. They want to like keep their investors happy and they're just looking for more leverage to do that. It's an amazing case study in a lot of things, one of which is just crowding. I think that's crowding in and then of course crowding out. The unwind is a, a crowding out exercise. 1997 is really the first stumble. I think and you'll know this much better than I will, but I believe they wound up up 17% for the year, which is pretty darn good, but not as good as they had done the first couple of years. But mid-year, you started to see some cracks. You had this Asian contagion episode of currency flight in Southeast Asia. VIX got to 35-ish, I want to say by October of 1997. So they got the first whiff of risk. I believe they put up a down month or two in mid-1997, but then they made this decision at the end of 1997 around their capital structure and the amount of capital that they had. Can you kind of talk through that and what you learned in your research process on it? Yeah, so as you were just saying, you know, in 1997, you started to have these cracks, particularly with the Asian tigers of volatility. That's where you started having these speculative attacks on, on the currencies of places like Thailand. And they did make it through the year with a positive return. But because returns were going down, and this is also part of the problem with the other the crowded markets, they looked at basically wanting to return capital to investors so they could basically focus on increasing the returns of the portfolio they still had. So it was a decision to increase their leverage just at the worst possible time. Some might call it hubris, some might call it conviction, but they were really, really focused on maximizing their own wealth. And most all of them were heavily, heavily invested in the fund on a personal basis as well. I'd love for you to just talk broadly about that, what you learned there, maybe some of the key people in terms of the philosophy of really eating your own cooking, as it were, and just the amount of risk that these folks were taking on a daily basis. How do you think through that with regard to their own investments in the fund? Yeah, so they after they basically forced their investors to take back this capital, $2.7 billion, they had this highly leveraged machine that was trading, and they used this metric called value at risk to run that machine. They had a partner called David Modest who was running it, who was in charge of risk there. And everyone knows what value at risk is. It's a percentile of the losses on the portfolio, so up to a 99th or 95th percentile. And of course, if you feed in low volatility, it makes everything look good. They did have some stress testing, but they didn't, I didn't think they took it seriously enough. 
So that convinced them that they were fine with the high leverage just because of the, the VAR model making everything look benign. You wrote a book on the financial crisis. It's amazing. Ten years later, and in fact, I was taking note, we'll get to this, but the Fed meeting around LTCM, I think it was September 22nd, 1998, where they brokered the sale or cajoled the counterparties to pony up some money to create the backstop. Boy, that was almost exactly 10 years before Lehman Weekend. (laughs) So this is really a a lot of things, some failure of underestimation of the amount of risk or how market prices can turn on you. What's the big picture when you talked about VAR and stress testing? What's the big picture from your perspective in terms of what what went wrong here? Well, VAR just doesn't take into account things like a big counterparty leaving the market or something like that. It's very dangerous because if it uses some historical returns or Monte Carlo simulation or something like that, it's only as good as what you put into it. So I think what happened in July 1998, you know, the first thing that really was a problem for them was when Sandy Weil, I mean, he, so Salomon Brothers was merging with City, and Sandy Weil, uh, who was the head of City, said he's going to shut down the arbitrage desk at Salomon. Now, since Meriwether left, there was still a very large relative value operation going on in Salomon. But then as soon as you have a decision like that in July 98, you start having an unwind of some positions that are similar to LPCM. And that's something that's not in a VAR model. That just immediately causes a loss of that. They're suddenly they're down by 15% just because of that decision by Sandy Weil. Now, there was a discussion internally among the partners when some of the VAR limits started to get breached with some consistency. They printed that first bad month. I want to say it was might have been June of 98. I think it was a down 10 or so. And so there was a discussion about what to do. You're breaching your VAR limits. The portfolio is too big. Let's trim it. But there's a lot of ways to go about that. Take us through that internal conversation and the advocates for different kind of strategies in terms of reducing the risk in the portfolio. So it was this problem of this question of whether you should ignore data. It sounds so stupid uh, when you read it today, but like they actually had this discussion about those down months in May and June. And I think in, in hindsight, that was because Salomon was unwinding the prop desk before it announced it, because um, you, you wouldn't want to close it after you announced it. So I think that's what was going on. It was being unwound, and they had these losses. And they said, this is an outlier, and you should exclude outliers because it's not a robust approach. And they actually had um, an intellectual conversation about that. And that made them overconfident. So they just basically sold liquid assets just to keep within their leverage limits when they should have actually using the opportunity to unwind some of their less liquid things when it was still possible to do it. I mean, that's a, a lesson that applies to today or any time. That to me is a really, it was an interesting story. And I believe you said that it was Scholes who really made the point that we ought not to unwind the liquid stuff because that's sort of an option on cash. If we really need to unwind something later, that's what we're going to need to turn to. So let's more focus on the harder to unwind stuff now. But I think he lost that fight. He lost that battle. And yeah, he was right in hindsight. 
because you do need that option. You absolutely do. Well, the LTCM DNA is really in complex fixed income, but they expanded out quite a bit. They were doing merger ARB. We had a program, among other banks, had the same program that was just basically a swap dealer intermediary to provide them financing, but they essentially took a a spider's approach to risk ARB. And I think it was Larry Hillebrand's idea that there's risk premium and risk ARB. We're not risk ARB analysts, but we're just going to do every trade. And some of them will work out, some of them won't, but we'll pick up some risk premium because it's there in the market. So they tried to almost index it. And they also got very involved in equity volatility. And I love the term central bank of volatility. So tell us about that foray and how folks like Rami Goldstein were involved in getting LTCM to be effectively the largest supplier of Vega in the world. I mean, part of this is is connected to this growth in the idea of of structured notes and structured products that kept on growing long after LTCM, actually. That was the first inkling of that you could, there was a big retail business in Europe and elsewhere in Asia by um, embedding equity options in structured notes so that you would go to retail and say you can have the upside of the DAX or the Hang Seng Index, but you're limited in the downside to get your money back. And UBS had a very strong retail franchise, so they were able to industrialize that. And that meant they just had a huge appetite for vol because they were just printing these structured notes to retail and in the hundreds of millions a month. And they needed a supplier on the other side. And it's not like in the corporate world where someone is long an FX forward is going to be naturally matched to someone on the other side of it. Like uh, if IBM is buying yen, then Ford is selling yen. There's very much like, no one is, who's really interested in selling volatility except a very large player, which happened to be LTCM. Yeah, and I think that they had a very specific view. In fact, I'm recalling a meeting I had with one of the principals, and I think the what I remember very specifically was the comment that they viewed themselves as the most efficient warehouser of gamma risk in the market. And um, that worked until those vol sales were at 20, and I think you say they got to as high as 40, and the mark-to-market was just incredible. There's an interesting part, Nick, in terms of the counterparties, and we'll talk about maybe the epic unwind of the portfolio through August and then into September and October. But there is a divergence of how different counterparties were acting in the markets with regard to their own self-interest. And you make a really interesting, I think, subtle difference between, let's say, the folks that had bought equity straddles, long-dated equity straddles from LTCM versus maybe some of its other counterparties, perhaps on the prime brokerage side, that they had different motivations. Can you walk through that part? Yeah. So you're talking about sort of after July 1998, you're talking about when the portfolio was going down, are you, Dean? Yes, exactly. So maybe start with the sequencing of events. A lot of this ties into Russia, but give us the high level around when and how things started to really accelerate to the downside for them. Well, Russia was really the start of it. You had the sort of um, closure of the Salomon Arb desk, which led to the negative return and the unwind of the, those liquid positions. And then you have this thing in Russia. Now, I find this is one of those things that's crazy in hindsight to look at because 
That was the old regime in Russia, the post-Soviet regime that was very open to Western advice and capital. And when that failed, the person that took charge of Russia was Vladimir Putin. He's now causing all sorts of problems. So there's a one of those historical kind of echoes with Russia there. So what happened in a nutshell was that the Russian government defaulted on these local currency bonds called GKOs, which um, people thought that they could hedge those because you hedge them using a non-deliverable forward. But then that was also um, prevented by Russia's central bank. So that lost traders a lot of money. And then that started a more serious unwind of risk trades across the board. So then that increased equity vol. And then you had this question of the mark to market of LTCM and the equity vol trades were going down in price. And then you have this market phenomenon where once people know that there's a forced seller in the market, then you ultimately can trade against them. And equity vol desks were able to do that. Yeah, it was very interesting to see the different behaviors based on what positions they had. We talked a little bit about Victor Hagani. One of his quotes, uh, I don't know if it was in your book, but he's has said something about the difference in terms of financial market insurance versus hurricane insurance. He says the hurricane is not more or less likely to hit because more hurricane insurance has been written. In the financial markets, this is not so because effectively when people know your positions, they'll shoot against you. And I think at some point, the portfolio itself really became the risk in the market. Take us through kind of August and September. Again, the chaos, of course, was in markets, but specifically in this portfolio and was of grave concern to all of the fund's counterparties as well. So when you have a, um, a market that's falling fast and you have a liquid securities or a liquid trade, then you become at the mercy of your counterparties because then there's a question of where do you mark those trades? And basically, once you have this danger of prices going down, the counterparties will mark as conservatively as possible because they don't have the information. And they'll be actually starting to, they'll actually be thinking about the unwind of LTCM's portfolio. So then they'll be thinking, well, we actually want to mark this as low as possible to benefit from that because then we can then just take control of those positions that we can close them out. So that's the negative cycle that hit LTCM in sort of late August, September 1998. And walk us through just the unwind itself. There was the Hail Marys of reaching out to folks like Buffett more than once. I thought it was really interesting, and I did not know this, that Hillebrand first offered Buffett, or might have been Eric Rosenfeld, first offered Buffett uh, the entire Telebs Siena position. And that was a no thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> that was a tough one. Then, of course, Goldman was involved. So give us a sequencing of Merriweather effectively writing that letter saying, look, we're looking for new capital. We love our trades. Um, of course, you love them at the current prices. <laughs> but um, walk us through the kind of chaotic unwind leading into the New York Fed. Yeah, as you said, they, um, Buffett had a look at it and then decided he didn't want to know. And Goldman visited LTCM and they went to Greenwich. They were trying to get some capital from Goldman. They were asking Goldman to put in $2 billion as fresh capital and then giving them the state. But 
Goldman wasn't really going to bite on it. And then I think what I heard at the time was, while John Corzine was talking to Merriweather, Lloyd Blankfein, who at that time was a trader, was actually having a look at the screens in the LTCM offices and, and was taking note of the positions so that he could go straight back to Wall Street and trade against them. So there were all of these stories at the time of just there was no sympathy from Goldman and so that was kind of that was the, the climate. But then you did have the banks that weren't as maybe as quite as smart as Goldman then and there was also some market turmoil. So that's when the Federal Reserve got involved. And then you started to have this role of the New York Fed basically trying to bring the banks together to put some money into um, take over the LTCM portfolio. You talk about Bill McDonough, who was he the head of the New York Fed? He was, yes. He was, he was the president of the New York Fed at the time. So he wound up much more deeply involved in this than he initially set out <laughs> to be. I'd love to hear um, just more about that, it's just in the way he got kind of drawn into this, even though he was trying to be a little bit more arm's length, he winds up to be a critical and, I guess, successful player in, in the resolution. Yeah. So the New York Fed knew all about Merriweather because they'd been involved in the Salomon bond scandal. So they weren't exactly going to be looking kindly on him, but they were very keen to find a solution. And I think also the other parts of the US government were as well. I think one of the people who was a working at the Treasury was uh, Gary Gensler, of course, who's now very well known today. So he was an assistant secretary then at the Treasury. There were a few players from DC who went up to Greenwich. And then what you had was this kind of deadline with Bear Stearns. So Bear Stearns was the prime broker, and they threatened to stop clearing the funds trades if the capital went below, I think it was like the last 500 million. So the capital had gone basically down from Four billion to five hundred million, and that evening they had to have a meeting with all of the you know, thirteen large counterparties, and they persuaded them to come up with this consortium and basically bail out the portfolio. Well, it's interesting. I'm looking at the return of the S and P in 1998, and it's 27 percent positive. And I just wonder if that was part of the almost ingredients that effectively allowed people to move on pretty quickly. It was a kick save and a beauty. It wasn't pretty, but it went away pretty quickly. There was certainly hearings in Congress. They wrote up a big paper on it. So they did some investigation on OTC derivatives. But I wanted to shift to the 10 years later, and you wrote a, a book, The Devil's Derivatives, and ask you to just draw some parallels, if there are any with regard to LTCM and, and the big one, the global financial crisis? The thing about the LTCM crisis, there was all this fear uh, about a meltdown at the time. It was very benign, and you could say this was a successful unwind. No Federal Reserve um, money required, no US taxpayer funds were needed. There was a 75 basis point cut in the Fed funds rates. That was kind of pretty much all that was needed, and this 3.6 billion from the banks. It's remarkable how unsystemic it was, despite all the fear at the time. It was a very benign thing. And you could say that it was basically, maybe it was too benign. And I miss one of the things I talked about in the Devil's Derivatives, because the messaging after 1998 was that this was really just a problem with a large unregulated hedge fund. And 
the banks were totally fine at managing risk. They didn't need to be, um, that didn't need to be reined in at all. That sort of paved the way for the continuation of a lot of the same activity, but they just found an alternative to LTCM. They just found different ways of finding counterparties that would help them sell trade and sell products. Probably the biggest one was they moved into credit risk and they started doing credit derivatives. They may, instead of having a large hedge fund, they found these special purpose vehicles that they traded credit derivatives with. They sold subprime mortgages to, and then they sold those special purpose vehicles. They, they sold those to pension funds and you name it. So the great financial crisis was a, the banks felt that they got away with, with the LTCM one and they just expanded uh, what they were doing. And they made the problem much worse. And then that was so bad that it really did change the financial system. It led to the end of the securities firms. It led to the Fed growing its balance sheet, which is still huge. That's the kind of the world we're in today, which is a far more central bank involvement in the market. That was the ultimate outcome of the great financial crisis. And you could say that the LTCM lesson was not heeded enough because we could have had less of that central bank intervention if we'd maybe done a bit more back in 1998 to look at the roles of the banks in these things and the incentives they had. Yeah, it's really interesting. The markets are, again, very different from physics in the sense that the backstory in markets matters a ton. Regulatory response, the view on what works and what doesn't emerges from different events. When I think about these big, big, big risk-offs, so we could say 87, I know you talk about some of that, in inventing money, of course, LTCM, GFC, we can throw COVID in there. And then even last week with SVB, you know, it's some version of when a security becomes runnable in the Tim Geithner terminology, when when there's just too much demand to get out of something that the market simply can't accommodate it, that's when the market breaks. And of course, underpinning the entire technology of Black-Scholes is the idea that the market can't break. There's always a buyer and seller instantaneously in whatever size you want to do. So we know that's not true. We kind of assume it away, but it does break down sometimes epically. Nick, tell us about risky finance and what's uh, occupying your time these days and what you're interested in and working on. Sure. So risky finance, it came out of working at places like Bloomberg. And I, I wanted to start my own data platform. I basically learned a lot of coding and I built this platform where you could visualize things like the balance sheets of banks. You could look at the bond markets and explore that with visualization tools. And then also um, it was a place to where I could write articles, I could write published comments. And also that was something that people would subscribe to. So I've been doing that for the last few years. And then also I'm looking at writing another book. So there's a potential book on the horizon as well at the moment. Fantastic. And so we find that at riskyfinance.com. Nick, it has been a real pleasure to do this uh, little retrospective and learn a little bit more about your process for writing the book. I've really valued it. It was great to reread the book. I found it to be an excellent read. And as I was saying, as I read it, I felt like it could have happened yesterday. And it was a long time ago, at least in terms of how quickly our world changes these days. So congrats on writing that, on writing Devil's Derivatives, and looking forward to the next publication you produce. So 
It was great to connect here, uh, Nick. Thanks again. Thank you, Dean. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm -hmm.